Now we pick up in John chapter 9, and believe it or not, we're actually going to do the entire chapter tonight. Uh, some of this I will read rather quickly because the way this narrative unfolds, uh, there's a lot going on, but it's really one unified story, so that's why we're going to treat it together. But before we jump into it, let me refresh us what we're coming out of in chapter 8. So Jesus has been standing there in front of all those great torches and so on and so forth in the treasury during the festival of booths and makes this grand proclamation that he is indeed the light of the world and then pharisees surprise surprise they don't like that and they get into it yet again and jesus kind of doubles down on that and tells them the true state of their soul that they are from below he is from above and it kind of devolves from there but what's interesting about this passage is that it really picks up right where that left off, but it happens with a miracle. Jesus does something miraculous, but it is very clearly intended to be a rejoinder to what just happened in chapter 8. And even though he's going to heal a real man in real time and space who is really blind, this man is also somewhat of an archetype for us. He's somewhat of an archetype of how all of us are before we meet Jesus. We are blind in our sins. And certainly the Pharisees remain that way until they put their faith and trust in Jesus, the few of them that do. But that context is important because of how the story unfolds. Let's look at it in verse 1. It says, And he passed by, and he saw a man blind from birth. That's important. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, that's a very telling question because it is a common Jewish belief at this time that these kinds of defects were from immediate hereditary sinful issues. issues. Some people even believed that uh, deformities could be traced to sin within the womb of one of the parents. Jesus comes back at that in just a moment, and he dispenses with that. But the way he answers that is basically going to be by saying that I'm not even going to get into this profitless discussion. Okay, that's where Jesus is going to go with this. But before we get into that, I want to give us a little bit of a warning, and that's actually my first point tonight, that we should all be wary of the legalistic outlook that their question presupposes. Because even those of us in the room tonight that have very strong, good theology and a very clear understanding of how the world is broken and that uh, there are certain things that happen because of the brokenness of the world, like people being born blind, it is very easy when suffering knocks on our own door to immediately turn from good theology to old school legalism. And what I mean by that, because legalism comes in a variety of forms, is this idea that if we are good, we get good, and if we behave bad, we get bad. Now, I purposely am using poor grammar there to try to drive home how we think about this. And again, even those of us with the best theology in the room, when suffering gets personal, I think our default setting is to slide in the wrong direction, and the enemy loves to pour gas on that fire. Because anything he can do to get us to question the character of God, question the goodness of God, question whether or not God is with us and for us in Jesus, like we know the Bible says that he is, 
He will take any and every opportunity to do just that. To put any kind of wedge that he can between us and our experience of the Father. Now, he can't get our souls if we belong to Christ. But he will still kill and destroy any way that he can. And I bet every one of us in this room have got some story where he has tried to do just that. So, at this point in the passage, we don't need to be like the folks asking this kind of question. The way that a lot of this stuff works out, you know this. It's a mystery. Sometimes you can do everything right, and it all goes to hell in a handbasket at the end. Or sometimes you do a lot wrong, and still blessings come anyway. The way that God works out his providential will is mysterious. But in those moments when we aren't sure what's going on, we have to go back to what we do know to be true. God is good. God is with us. God is for us in Jesus. And even if he does allow awful things into our lives, he has a purpose for every one of those trials, and he wants to use it to make us like Christ. So that being said, it kind of makes sense what Jesus says when he answers. He said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents so we speak indirectly to that idea that was out there. But that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now this is a, a special nugget here because sometimes we don't know exactly what God is up to. He says exactly what God is up to here. And it's in that gap of understanding that we often have that we trust the Lord and we strengthen ourselves and the Holy Spirit strengthen us and, and, and the church strengthen us to grow in our faith, to trust Jesus in this. But what he's saying here is right in line with what we know about the larger purpose of how God wants to use trials in our lives. But he was doing something very specific here with this man. And then he makes this further identity statement about himself in verse 4. Look at this. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. So again, this feels like the 27th time that Jesus is talking about his divine origin and the authority that he has been sent with from God. That's not an accident. But there's a night that's coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So again, even in these two chapters, this is yet another proclamation of that statement, and he's really driving that point home. Now watch what he does right here in verse 6. This is fascinating. Having said these things, he spit on the ground... And he made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Now I think we probably have two simultaneous responses here with what Jesus does. And you can be honest with this. The first one is, this is gross. And the second one is, this is awesome. Because what Jesus does here is he spits on the ground and then he takes that spit mud and puts it on this guy and sends him off. And I think part of what is going on here is actually our second point, And that is that Jesus is the Messiah and everything he does, he does on purpose. It is not an accident that he used spit and mud to do this. Now, I can't tell you exactly why he did that, but I guarantee you Jesus knows. But where he sent this guy, <coughs> we do know why. The pool of Siloam, which it says here means sent, 
gives this same idea that Jesus has been sent by God. Okay, It's another action reminder of who he is. And this pool of the waters of Siloam are also mentioned over in Isaiah chapter six or chapter 8, verse 6, a chapter that is replete with prophecy about the Messiah. And so when he is sending him there, he is making yet another statement, I am who I said I am, I am the prophesied one, and you need to listen and obey what I have come to tell you and what I am telling you to do. So that's why he sends him there. <coughs> and thankfully, this guy does the right thing. Now, look at how the people responded. <coughs> Verse 8, the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? And he said, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I don't know. <coughs> so basically, <coughs> as with uh, other pieces in this text, he is just re uh, reminding them of what just happened. He is re retelling the story, so to speak. And what happens through the next part of this, and I'll cut through this a little bit more quickly because a lot of it's repetitive. Um, there's going to be three interrogations. The neighbors seem to kind of know what to make of this. So they're like, well, we'll bring in the Pharisees. Maybe they can sort it out. <coughs> and so you can see how that goes. But they brought the Pharisees to the man who had formerly been blind. And it says, now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Now, that's not a throwaway detail. The fact that it was a Sabbath day, how do you think that's going to be received? Not well. Because they have all these rules <coughs> of how things need to go and not go on the Sabbath, and you can't even make clay on the Sabbath, so Jesus has violated their man-made rules. Then in the next uh, bit here, 16 and following, they get into an argument, and then there's this back, back and forth that comes up again later where they're talking about, if, if he could do this, well, how could he do it? Because he, he's not a sinner. And if he is a sinner, and there's and all of this back and forth. And then when you get down to verse 18, they still don't like the answer. And they begin the second interrogation. The, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked him, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then now does he see? And the parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And then John gives this editorial comment that really shows just how sad of a situation that this was. Here's a man, blind from birth, you can imagine how difficult that was. And instead of rejoicing with this man and his family, the Pharisees cause all these problems, uh, problems for him, and then you get this comment. His parents said that these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, the parents said, he is of age, asked him. So after that, they come back a third time. And it says, for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. 
we know that this man is a sinner. And he answered, whether he is a sinner or I, I do not know. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now <coughs> I see. So what is happening here is this set of religious leaders, they're basically stuck. They can't dispute the miracle. Jesus has obviously healed this guy. But at the same time, they can't come out and say that about Jesus because they are against him and have been against him from the beginning. So the back and forth continues. <clears throat> but here's one thing to think about that is of note here. Look back at the way that the man speaks about this. One thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. He's not given us a school in how to give a testimony, but I will say this. Sometimes if that's all we have for our testimony, that's better than nothing. Because he says, listen, I don't know <coughs> all the ins and outs of this. I don't know all the ways that he did this. I don't even know exactly what this guy's about. <coughs> but here's what I do know. I couldn't see, and now I can, and that is significant. So the next time you get into a situation and somebody maybe asks you, <coughs> you know, hey, tell me all this about Jesus. Tell me everything that you know and don't know. If you can't come up with all of it, you can say that. I know this. I couldn't see, but now I can. And Jesus did it. Now look at verse 26. Then they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? So he's answering their questions, but you can almost tell that there's some sarcasm involved in this. They heard it too, and they reviled him saying, you are his disciple, <clears throat> but we are disciples of Moses. We know what God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. And the man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So that's that same idea that they were bringing up before. And he's really kind of using their logic against them. That he's essentially saying, listen, we know God would not do this if he was just some random guy that hated God and was on a mission against him, a sinner. But clearly this has happened. And again, he's showing them that they are trapped. Never since the world began, verse 32 has it been heard, does anyone open the eyes of a man born blind? If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and you would teach us? And they cast him out. And again, I think this is really sad. But here's the truth. This is what religion does. If you only have a relationship with God that is predicated upon rule following, this kind of hostility, this kind of neglect of what's really important, see also healed people right in front of you, see also their families, and also what the most dangerous thing that religion does is it causes us to miss Jesus. Now, when I talk about religion, I'm not talking about organized faith systems. I think where we stand on all those things, it, it, it's pretty clear. But I'm talking about faith systems apart from the finished work of Christ. This is what it produces. Hostility, people neglect, and missing the actual Jesus 
right in front of us. And also, look at, look at this. It, it just strikes me how sad. Not only did they, you know, get after this guy and get after his family, they put him out of the synagogue for pointing out who Jesus was. And that's the next principle I want to point out here as well. That even if we're right about Jesus, sometimes we still get penalized. Jesus tells us this is going to happen. He says, don't be surprised if they hate you. They hated me. And they, then you follow me. It comes up also in 1 Peter. It also comes up in 1 John. See it in John 15 here. But here's the other thing to think about with this. This is kind of like that idea that we had at the front of the passage. The whole concept that it's not a mathematical equation as we live in this life. Following Jesus does not mean that there won't be problems. Following Jesus means that there will be problems. And part of the great tragedy of what you might call the prosperity gospel in our day is that they get this wrong. And there are countless churches filled with countless people that end up when they have a real tragedy in their lives walking away from God because they don't understand that it's not a mechanistic system. That there is always mystery, that there is always difficulty, that sometimes you say the exact right things about Jesus and they put you out because of it. You think about this in the life of the apostles, it happened to all of them. You look at the ministry of Paul, how did that go? Great success, but also many, many, many times in prison. You think about Jesus himself, the one who did every single thing right in every way, and they killed him for it. So even though this is not kind of the big idea of the passage, this kind of truth, we need to make sure that we understand it. To gird our spiritual loins, so to speak. Because we will be in these kinds of situations where we suffer for righteousness' sake. But let me also give you some good news. This time from the mouth of St. John Chrysostom. When he was commenting on this passage, he said this. He said, the Jews cast him out of the temple, and the Lord of the temple found him. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Now, clearly, he'd already healed his eyes, but what's about to happen right here is he's about to heal his soul. And he answered, and he said, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. So this is his conversion. Now, he doesn't pray the sinner's prayer right here like most of us did when we met Jesus. Nothing wrong with that. But what's clear is he's putting his faith and trust in Christ. He's transferring the leadership of his life over to him. He's turning from his sins. That's what's happening right here with him saying, I believe and worshiping him. But one thing that we also need to understand here, and I think this strikes pretty close to the heart of what John is saying. This is the next point. Is that before we can receive spiritual sight, we must first acknowledge that we need it. This man understood that he needed not just physical sight, but he needed spiritual sight. He needed to believe in this son of man that Jesus was proclaiming himself to be. And I think part of what we need to do at this point in the passage is we need to ask ourselves, do we know that we need spiritual sight? 
Have we come to the place where we have turned from our sins and trusted in Christ and believed that he is who the Bible says that he is? If we haven't, then friends, let today be the day of salvation. In just a bit, when the rest of us take communion, you hold off, but let's see you put your trust in Christ tonight. This miracle-working Jesus is reaching out to you through this passage. And he wants to save you. And you got to admit that you need to be saved in order to be saved. And that's part of the good news in this passage. Now look at this. Verse 39. Jesus says, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Now that's one of those Jesus proverb difficult kinds of statements. The Pharisees picked up on what he was trying to do there, and it said some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Here's what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying you think you have it all together. You have some knowledge of the law, and that's good. But instead of that leading to me, who gave you the law, it has led you toward self-righteousness. It has led you toward pride. It has led you toward religion and not a relationship with me. And the spiritual principle for us there and the warning for us is that there are none so blind is those who refuse to see their need for Jesus. There, is no, there are none so blind as those who refuse to see their need for Jesus. That's the real danger in this passage. The Pharisees thought they had it all together. They thought that they had arrived. Their acquaintance with the law had taught them that they weren't perfect. They knew that. But they didn't understand how deeply infected they were with sin. They thought that their externals were enough. But the reality is their hearts were darkened and only Jesus could save them. Here's what Spurgeon says about this. He said, it is not our littleness that hinders Christ, but our bigness. It is not our own weakness that hinders Christ. It is our strength. It is not our darkness that hinders Christ. It is our supposed light that holds back his hand. Oh, friends, that is a strong encouragement for us. And I think part of the response that I want myself to have to this passage, and I think all of us, is to realize how great Jesus is and how much we need him. That we don't see anything apart from the grace of God. That we don't have anything apart from the grace of God. But in Jesus, we can see how the world really is. In Jesus, we can have everything that we need. In Jesus, we are made seeing that we too were born blind. So we don't want to be like the Pharisees. We want to be like this guy. We want to be like this guy that recognizes that we need Jesus to intervene and help us. We want to be like 
all the people in the Bible, the, the man in the Bible in particular, but there's plenty of others this way too, that says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. We want to be people that understand our deep sinfulness and our deep need. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis in uh, the introduction to the screw tape letters. He says this, he says, Some have paid me an undeserved compliment by supposing that my letters were the ripe fruit of many years of study in moral and ascetic theology. They forgot that there is an equally reliable, though less credible, way of learning how temptation works. My own heart, I need no other, showeth me the wickedness of the ungodly. What C.S. Lewis is saying there is all he has to do to see his own sinfulness is to look in the mirror. All he has to do to see his own deep and abiding need for Jesus is to just listen to himself. To think about his own heart and temptation and to see how much he needs Christ. But let me give you some wonderful news there. That does not have to end in navel-gazing. That does not have to end in woe-is-me despair. That type of humility is a great place for God to come along and put his arm around us. And we experience his empowering, shaping, changing presence to become more like Jesus and to become faithful and effective in ministry and helping many other strugglers along the path. Friends, this is a real guy, but we're all this guy. We were all born blind in our sin. And we need Jesus to come along and touch us and save us. And we need to resist the temptation to be like these Pharisees, to try to have it all together. Because we just can. We go to the one who has it all together for us. And he helps us put it together. He strengthens us from within. He helps us become more like Jesus. But not in our own strength in the strength that God provides. We work out our own salvation, absolutely, but it is God who works in us to will and to work according to his good purpose. So let's think back through what we've talked about tonight. Covered a lot of ground in one chapter. We gotta resist the temptation to think that everything in this world is mechanistic, that if you do good, you get good, and if you do bad, you get bad. It doesn't work that way. Then on top of that, when we think through the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, he heals people in some ways that are orthodox and other ways like this that are very unorthodox. But it's his prerogative because he is who he said he is. We saw the danger of religion. We saw that sometimes even doing the right thing, he can get you in the hot water. And then finally, we want to avoid the blindness of resisting who Jesus is and who we are. So my question tonight for you is, what's the Lord saying to you through this passage? For some in here tonight, he may be saying to you, listen, you came in here and you've been trying to save yourself your entire life. You've been trying to be good enough to get yourself to heaven and you just can't do it. You need to abandon that self-salvation project and you need to come home to Christ tonight and you need to let him save you. He is more than willing, and we'd love to stand with you in that.
For others, maybe he's helping with some theology tonight. Maybe he's reminding you of what you already know to be true. For still others, maybe he's calling out some pride that you didn't even realize was a thing until this very moment. But I guarantee for all of us, he is showing us the greatness and the beauty and the wonder of who he is and what he does in making people born blind able to see. Let's go to him now in prayer. Oh Lord, we thank you that we can gather around the campfire of your word, as it were, and that we can be warmed by it. Lord, I pray for whatever is going on in the hearts of all those that are here tonight. I pray that you would speak to each of us individually as I know that you are and will. For those who need to be confronted, Lord, I pray that you would do it graciously. For those who need to be comforted, we trust that you will do it so gently as only you can. For those that need to be saved, Lord, I pray that they would respond in faith and repentance tonight. For anybody dealing with anything else, Lord, I pray that you would remind us all of the greatness of your power and the availability of your strength. Thank you for this reminder tonight. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.